Hi, thanks for tuning in to another episode of my podcast, Help From Above. My name is Daniel Tropp. Very excited about today's episode. I have not one, but two uh, specialists with us today to discuss the cannabis legalization uh, recent legislation and the impact that it's going to have on the markets, as well as commercial real estate in particular. Um, Let me do some quick intros here, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, Andrew Schriever is a partner with Cuddy Fetter. Uh, Andrew is a co-chair and also leads the telecommunication group, uh, where he deals with uh, litigation on commercial telecom, corporate real estate, and land use matters. And he also chairs the firm's cannabis law practice. Uh, Together with our uh, next guest, David Clifford Holland, the two uh, are active in some trade organizations. They uh, founded the New York City Cannabis Industry Association and the Hudson Valley Cannabis Industry Association. Um, our additional guest, David Clifford Holland, has a long uh, storied career working as a litigation attorney and has represented a broad, stake, a broad range of stakeholders in the cannabis industry. Uh, in addition to his professional work and the work in the trade organizations, uh, David is also legal advisor to the Last Prisoner Project, which we'll uh, touch on towards the end of the show. I want to leave some time for that. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both. Very excited to have you on and uh, looking forward to delving into the topic. It's, uh, it's a really important conversation to have within the real estate industry. The, the one sort of thing I wanted to preface it with is I think between the two of you, you guys have done a really great job of uh, bringing all this research to the forefront. Um, I did some homework for the episode, the uh, presentations, the webinars, the podcasts, all the research papers um, that you've done, you know, not only touch on the commercial side, but also the really important history of cannabis, the history of, you know, criminalization, some of the ties to some unsavory elements and, and, you know, social inequality, racism, things like that. Um, So I'd almost be remiss if I didn't mention that today, we don't have a lot of time and we really wanted to focus on the real estate aspect. But for, I did want to mention that for anyone looking to get a more comprehensive uh, understanding of the topic, definitely go to their websites, take a look at some of the research. Um, You won't be disappointed. It's, it's very informative. It's, um, disturbing some some parts right but i think as uh as a whole we should understand it so we get it right this time around is that fair very much so thank you um you know we were prepared for it but it has been a lot that's come on and because with legalization comes destigmatization of the whole cannabis industry you know the level of interest starts with people with very fundamental questions to people that have been part of the industry for the last you know 20 30 years so you're finding a whole new potential group of people interested in speaking about it and seeking representation and advice so it's been really interesting to see what the real industry is for those that have not been exposed to it before that's encouraging too cuz i know one of the questions i wanted to ask was how's the stigma change i think for the longest time you know, I, all I can speak to is really the, the commercial real estate world. Um, some of the institutional investors wouldn't even dip their toes in the pool. There's just too many obstacles to financing, to insuring. There's uh, too many obstacles as far as federal law. So it's really just more of like the entrepreneurial minded investors that have been kind of chattering about it. Are you seeing 
a little more comfort among investors and, and companies trying to kind of wrap their minds around things a little bit now? Yeah, it's a sea change. Um, you, you go, if you go back to some statistics, um, you know, it, it, over the last decade, uh, the support for national legalization has gone from 50% until the most recent Pew poll, which is 91% in favor of some form of legal cannabis, be it adult use or medical. Um, there are only three states in the country left where it's illegal on, on some level. Uh, and there's about 10 that, are, that have it decriminalized. 37 others have legal markets. So, you know, the dam is broken. Um, on a legal level, the, uh, there, that's, a, that's a lecture in and of itself that Dave and I, you know, sort of give to groups. Uh, um, but the gist is that the federal government has been hands off and, and uh, issued policies from the Department of Justice saying that they'll stay hands off. Uh, that policy has fluctuated, but now it's, it's pretty steady. And the House of Representatives has actually passed legislation that one, would want to allow banks to engage in commerce uh, with states, uh, businesses in states where you have legal markets. Um, and there's another bill called the Moore Act, which would expunge national cr uh, criminal records, federal records, um, as well as either decriminalize or legalize, but it would open uh, the gates for interstate commerce and no longer be an issue. But as a practical matter, the Department of Justice has maintained that it won't go after businesses in states uh, that are uh, complying with the legal states markets, um, subject to you know adhering to federal priorities like not being part of you know gangs or carrying guns and things like that. Um, so it's it's and in terms of you know opportunities right now, it's the House that have passed that. The Senate hasn't, but Vice President Harris was originally was originally one of the Senate sponsors of the the Senate version. So you know you add all of that up, coupled with the fact that you have a seventy one percent increase in national revenues for reported cannabis markets, uh, and that leaves out probably about seventy five percent of revenue that flows still underground while we have to bring markets into legal spaces. Uh, the opportunities are tremendous and. I guess just to sort of finish a long answer, to get back to the direct point of the stigma, now, you know, occasionally we're still hearing things like, well, I don't want my kid overdosing on pot, right? And and then we just have to gently explain, like, you know, not in a patronizing way. We understand that's what people have been told all their lives. It's physically impossible for that to happen. You know, people say, well, it's much worse than alcohol. Well, you know, that's not true on many levels. Examples is that uh, alcohol, uh, you know, is the CDC actually had a report that that said that uh, the death rates of alcohol is 95,000 deaths in the United States each year. That's 261 deaths per day. And that adds up to a collective cost, not only in terms of 29 years of, of, of um, loss of life by an average, but they added that up. And the economic damage to the United States in 2010, according to the CDC, is $249 billion. And it causes or leads to high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, liver disease, digestive problems, cancer of the breast, mouth, throat, esophagus, you can go on. Cannabis is used to treat things like Alzheimer's, appetite loss, cancer, Crohn's disease, immune system diseases, PTSD, and that list goes on. So you know, when people are starting to understand that what they've been told is just simply not true, and when they pair it with I would say the most important piece, which you've, you've alluded to, and that's our social equity piece and policy perspectives, that tells the raw truth about the history of the, the criminalization of this plant was tied directly to trying to find ways to arrest black people. And we have direct quotes from the Nixon administration in our literature on the website. Uh, don't take our word for it. Take it out of the mouths of the people who started it. Dating back to Harry Anslinger, who was the original predecessor to the DEA and was in charge from the 30s to 1961. 
the things he said are horrific. We won't repeat them on this podcast, but if you want to learn about it, go to the social equity piece on our policy perspectives on the website. Yeah, and, and I'm going to just join in real quick on the destigmatization. Two points, you know, one, as Andrew said, you know, the, the myth about cannabis overdoses, you know, more people are going to die from a rabid unicorn attack today than they are from cannabis. So that would be statistic number one, because it just cannot happen. But more importantly, as as Andrew was just leading into the whole thing with Harry Ainslinger, the whole basis of the persecution of cannabis rather than just the prosecution has been race based. So the restorative justice aspects of what New York's Marijuana Regulation Taxation Act um, uh, is designed to do is to promote and protect and uh, extend the opportunity to those people that have been in the cannabis industry, which predominantly those who had been suffering the consequences of the persecution. So there's a lot of social equity for people of color and those communities that have been adversely impacted by the war on drugs. They're supposed to be the first to, uh, to be able to get the program truly to its uh, restorative justice elements. So but destigmatization does not come with money from Wall Street. It comes from money invested into the very ethos behind why we needed to restore justice to begin with. So everybody who wants to get into this business do understand just because you have made it in some other industry does not give you uh, guarantees that you're going to be able to do uh, equal success here because there, this defies every business model ever invented and it defies um, other employment aspects that you have not considered before. So it's a vast landscape and it's a very exciting landscape. And that's what's keeping our phone ringing night and day these days. Yeah, very well said. It's um, really exciting. Um, just the new markets that it's opening up. Personally, I would love to help you reach the cohort of people that are just against cannabis in general. But um, I don't think that's the cohort of people that listen to this podcast. If that makes sense. Uh, what I can help sure. you do is connect with uh, owners, investors, brokers, people in commercial real estate who are excited yeah. about this new market um, that's being created and this new arm of our economy, this new ecosystem. Uh, I'm curious, like broad strokes, do we have any sort of projections, any estimations on what it means for the economy, the tax revenue generated? the jobs created, and then maybe from there we can start drilling down into real estate in particular. Oh, absolutely. Let me, let me start with some statistics for you. Um, on the economy, um, it's estimated that uh, it's going to be $350 million in tax revenues to start. There's going to be um, 13%, as I said, on the, on the state tax. There's other uh, taxes built into um, potency. To. But part of that flows direct to the local community. And what I mean by that is that they take 4% off that, 1% goes to the county, and 3% goes to directly to the municipality that's hosting the business. And by that, it's the retail point of sale dispensary um, or other retail points of sale. There are a couple of others. Um, so that's number one. Number two is you're going to have ancillary markets building up around and, and really actually to, to get to that, let me be specific to real estate and construction. I mean, it, it's part and parcel of what we're talking about. You're gonna have indoor growth facilities. Um, you're going to have, um, and that's for different kinds of licenses, for cultivators, for micro businesses, which will be allowed to cultivate, for co-ops, which will be allowed to cultivate, and then for medical, uh, what they call registered organizations. So all of those will, will need brick and mortar 
and every service that goes along with that. You'll have large-scale sites for indoor grows. You'll have security features, so security companies are going to be very big in this. Artificial lighting, watering, humidification, HVAC for grow, um, for use in home use in apartment buildings where they're going to have to work this around. Uh, that involves architecture, that involves engineering, standard construction services. You have um, solar for sustainability, sales, leasing. Um, and then beyond that, now that cannabis is no longer stigmatized, they're bringing back industrial materials like hemp, which can not only serve as insulation, but they actually have building materials that compare to steel in terms of strength. You know, at a, a, on a renewable resource, you know, in addition to making paper where you cut down a tree for to make hemp, you can make paper from, uh, I'm sorry, cut down a tree to make paper, you can use hemp to make paper. Hemp is a 90 day re renewable resource. Trees cost 80 years to grow, then you cut them down and you lose oxygen as a result. So, you know, there, there's th those are like the swath of, of in, uh, local opportunities. And all of that means that when you have these businesses downtown, other ancillary businesses start coming up because when the stigma breaks, which is happening now, you get cannabis tourism around these sorts of things too. And instead of going, you know, to bars, people will go to, they'll allow for on-site consumption facilities and, you know, other places, restaurants, things like that pop up around it. So for local communities, it's actually got, you know, a huge boom. Um, and, and I don't have the number of job creation. I thought I had that statistic in front of me, but, uh, that's actually listed on our website too. So. Right. And, and I would just add that, you know, from a real estate perspective, penalty now for a landlord who leases or sells a building to a licensed cannabis operation. That is a very different um, approach than had existed before in other iterations of the MRTA. So people can feel more secure that provided that the operation is well vetted before it comes in, there's no consequence to them after the fact for having leased it or sold it. Yeah, it's so it's creating this large economy, right, with all these ancillary services that we might not think about. We need landlords, we'll need brokers, we'll need contractors, very kind of specialized uh, vendors and project managers, architects, uh, transport. It, it's really feeding every part of the real estate supply chain. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, you know, we call it the seed to sale chain and that's exactly what it is. I mean, if, if you have an upstate growth site, you You've grown it, somebody's processing it, somebody's transporting it, somebody's warehousing it, you know, and, and on and on. And, and each time I said that, there's a real estate opportunity at each point along the way. Yeah, what, what strikes me is really, um, I guess, beneficial for the real estate world now is if you look at the specific product types that are hurting the most or there's the most uncertainty coming out of the pandemic, it's office, it's retail, it's hospitality. And this sort of touches on all three of those, you have the dispensaries that can fill retail space. Uh, I heard you mention cannabis tourism. I don't know how relevant it is to New York when all the neighbors are already legal, but you know, certainly it couldn't hurt the hospitality industry right now. Um, and then you have office too. I guess a lot of these companies will be new, will be startups, they'll need office space. And, and that's sort of like where all the uncertainty is right now uh, yeah. among product types. You know, actually, it's interesting it's about the tourism bit. Um, New York is actually the cannabis capitalist of the world. It's just never been official. But, uh, you know, we're, we're known as a, as a state to have more consumption than really any other place. And, and um, so we've actually, we think that there will be a strong market, for example, for like, you know, city tours that, and, and we're not talking about, you know, overwhelming communities. In fact, one of the things our associations really focus on is, you know, people don't want the smell wafting through their window if they're not interested in it. And that's completely understandable, right? So you have to be really respectful to how you do it. 
but you could develop, you know, um, places that, that are, are tourist friendly in terms of on-site consumption sites. And it's an experience, you know, you, you purchase at a dispensary, you, you can go to an on-site consumption site. And, you know, the other thing about cannabis, which, which you know, again, is not sort of mentioned in the stigma, is it's a very social plant. Uh, where people use it for recreational purposes. It's conducive to a bar-like atmosphere. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a quieter bar. Uh, you know, it's, uh, people are less loud. Um, that sort of thing. So one other question I, I one other question I had I, I hear this a lot from uh, investors maybe uh, you guys can touch on it there are still obstacles right it's still classified as a, a federal class one narcotic so uh, owners will tell me look if I if I get a cannabis tenant in my space or I'm utilizing it for cannabis anywhere in the supply chain I default my mortgage I have a conventional mortgage and you know I default it right away. I've heard uh, there are obstacles to insuring the space, um, all the other sort of services you need when, when you own commercial real estate. Is, uh, is there like a light at the end of the tunnel there? Do you see any of those sort of federal obstacles coming down anytime soon? Well, I think Andrew just touched on a number of the different congressional acts that are out there, the MORE Act, the SAFE Act, and so forth. But these are the stumbling blocks to the industry in certain ways. But one should keep in mind, and you'll hear this called the Rohrbacher Farr and the Rohrbacher Blumenauer Amendments and other, these are spending appropriations measures that have said, at least with regard to medical cannabis, that federal tax funds cannot be used to fund federal law enforcement to go out and prosecute or investigate um, medical cannabis operations and their patients who are compliant with the state law. So there, Congress has literally handcuffed itself from being able to enforce the state, the, the federal law for the most part. And they have never gone after the adult use that exists now in uh, 15 states. So we need to um, continue to lobby and take other efforts to try to, you know, uh, bring about federal legalization, which will remove some of those stumbling blocks. But there are a number of impediments that have been thrown into the process that can give greater um, comfort to insurance companies, mortgage companies, and so forth, that it, at least with regard to state law, that the landlords are compliant when they allow those operations in. Got it. So let's let's kind of move through the process, right? You have the ownership now. You've you know, settle the financing issue. Um, you have a use coming in for, uh, let's say, grow room or distribution. Specifically, there's challenges with the building systems, right? Things that owners should know about ahead of time if they're building or if they're retrofitting buildings for cannabis use. Andrew? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think the easy examples uh, is, let, let, let's start with uh, indoor grow facilities. Right. You're going to need to make sure that you have the loads right to deal with the lighting. You're going to want to make sure that, and so, you know, you've got sort of specialized engineering for this type of equipment. I mean, it's the same way whenever you have a new industry that you sort of build a new factory that's going to have different needs. So uh, HVAC, there's going to be, I think, a particular area of attention on that. And that goes not only into retrofitting buildings, but new designs. So, for example, if this is going to be nationally legal, then you're actually going to want to have architectural, you know, and engineering designs that take into account new buildings that do allow for, you know, people to, to use combustible cannabis where they live in, in, in terms of, um, you know, protecting 
the plant, protecting uh, right now people are using cash, although there are a lot of banks uh, that are state chartered that are working with us. Um, and, you know, we can talk about that with people offline about that. Um, and then, you know, it, it's essentially all the things that would go into making sure that you're avoiding basically the overall things like nuisance, uh, crowding, you're gonna have to deal with traffic issues and, you know, that's gonna involve landscape planning um, or site planning, I should say. Uh, and, and we're not also not sure what requirements there's gonna be for security people as they're coming in and out. You know, it's gonna be one-way traffic, for example. So all of those things are gonna involve planners too. Um, so your basic, you know, I'd say slate of professionals that serve these types of projects, they're gonna to have to come up with new ways to do these things. And just so we're clear, I, I wanna get a sense for the barrier to entry. Uh, the businesses themselves, the cultivators, processors, distributors, they'll need the licensure process. These kind of ancillary services like the HVAC contractor, um, the construction workers, the uh, brokers, the landlords, um, architects, interior designers. Is there any sort of barrier to entry or any sort of licensure on that side or is it just kind of laissez-faire? Certain aspects of this are going to require um, some form of permitting. Um, and I, I'm pulling that from my memory of... Um, the hemp regulations that were in effect, and I'm pretty sure that that carried over to the, the new statute. Uh, but so for example, transport, right? There you special permit to transport, but it's not gonna be the, the same type of process as having to, uh, you know, get, get a permit for, um, uh, you know, like interior design, for example. I mean, I, I don't see why that would require any sort of, you know, extra licensure. Sure. Okay, um, and I think I, I saw maybe one presentation, Andrew, that you gave and you know you uh, tied it into kind of look bringing back brick and mortar, which I thought was really interesting. For the time being, um, you can't really replicate this completely online. And it got me thinking of the analogy of paint. I think you know now it's probably easier, but years ago it was too cost prohibitive for companies to ship paint around. Um, so for the for a while anyway, that sort of sheltered, uh, you know, the Benjamin Moores of the world from like the Amazon effect. They still needed their brick and mortar. But we anticipate this will be brick and mortar based. I mean, that's going to be a pretty big boon for the industry, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I mean, let's take it to 10 years from now, right? 10 years from now in, in communities that, that have done this, where, where the businesses are sort of, you know, in harmony and, and everybody's getting along and it's not overbearing and all that. You know, you're going to have basically the equivalent choice of being able to go to a bar, but to use cannabis instead of alcohol, uh, like a coffee shop in Amsterdam. That, you know, um, for people who have been to Amsterdam and, and you know, seen those coffee shops, it's a completely like there, there's a culture that evolves around the entire thing. Um, so it, it, I guess that's just one example of how you could see small villages having, you know, uh, an on-site consumption area or, or maybe a few by then. Um, and it's like a cafe culture. Um, and, and so, you know, that's an easy example, but around that it's, it's, you know, those communities tend to attract, you know, more people to, to live there. And then, you know, that generally enhances the real estate tax base. I mean, everything feeds each other. It's why it's an ecosystem. Uh, and in this case, I think brick and mortar is at the center of that because it's the experience of going to buy. It's the experience of socializing together with it, you know, in the same way that you have as a bar. Uh, you know, and, and think of some of the more popular spots that people like where there's a really nice block of bars, you know, where it's where it 
uh, and it's not loud and all that. I'm talking about, you know, some of the nicest streets in the city like that. That's, that's a vision that you can build around this. And, you know, beyond that, you know, since half of the, the goal is that half of the licenses are to go to social equity applicants, I would encourage every business, whether you're part of the social or not, to think about having a social equity plan, which means reinvesting in the community, because you're going to be working as part of their plan in order to get their licenses. Uh, and that's a good thing. Um, so bear in mind that when you're dealing with investment, you're not just building out infrastructure or repurposing space. You're actually building and possibly getting, you know, when you're dealing with brick and mortar, things like um, public-private partnerships, IDA financing, you know, for community reinvestment, you know, grant projects. So that's stuff people should be looking out for too, because then you go back to one of the things that we always say we want to do, which is to do good and to do well. And one thing I might just say is you really have to vision this as SimCity meets cannabis, and you're starting really creating an entirely new industry that has, while it's existed underground, is going to take a different, you know, uh, uh, face in the community as it rolls out. But some communities are not crazy about having this be uh, very overt and having um, numerous consumption houses and storefronts. And the statute has provided for delivery service as well. So we're going to see other types of ancillary spaces that will get picked up along the way, including vault space. Vault space will be very important to be able to protect product and it can go out through a delivery service rather than storefront entry levels. So there's lots of room for people with interest in real estate to really um, find avenues by which to find entrepreneurs that want to team with them to bring this to their communities. Yeah, and I, I think certainly over the last couple of years, the commercial real estate world has seen um, not necessarily tough laws, but laws that we, we don't think necessarily made sense coming from uh, the state assembly, the city council, the governors and the mayor's office. But to me, when I did the research on this, especially, uh, you know, the components of the law that kind of extend the opportunity to disadvantage people, I thought it makes sense. Uh, so it was nice to just kind of see that uh, thought process in the in the uh, in the legislation. And maybe on that note, it's it's a good opportunity to bring up uh, the last prisoner project. David, could you tell us a little bit about um, your involvement there and what the organization uh, the mission is? Oh, sure. Thank you for asking. Um, the Last Prison Project is really dedicated to bringing justice to those people who have borne the penalties of the war on drugs, particularly when it comes to cannabis. And so um, there are many people that are still doing excessive prison terms that are 20 plus years. And I have been part of helping get five guys that were doing at least one life sentence without the opportunity of parole. Uh, to get them actually have their sentences commuted to time served in the federal prison system. And they're now all free and out, which has been a wonderful thing. So Last Prisoner is start was started by Steve D'Angelo, who founded Arcview, as well as Harborside Dispensary. So he has a very uh, uh, prominent place in the industry itself. Um, but the, our commitment is to try to find justice, to try to stop the persecution of people for something that is now completely legal and other people are coming in to profit at the efforts that these people made to build the business to what it was and what it is today. So that's that's in, sort of in short what Last Prisoner Project's all about. And I'm very honored to be a legal advisor to them in that regard. And you should be. Yeah, it's, it's a great job and uh, we appreciate your work on it. Um, gentlemen, I think that's that's really informative uh, for property owners, for investors in particular. I know we will uh, have some follow-up and, and probably a ton of questions. Would you mind just sharing contact info, letting people know the best way to, to reach you with any questions, with any uh, feedback? 
of course. Uh, so you can you can email me at uh, a Shriver. That's a s c h r i e v like Victor e r at cuddyfader.com. That's c like Charlie u d like Dave another d like Dave e r f like Frank e d e r dot com. And for me, uh, easiest would be D Holland. So it's the letter D for David, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at nyccia.org. That's D Holland at nyccia.org. All right, gentlemen, I, I know how busy you've been. I really appreciate your time uh, coming on and, and doing the show today. So thank you very much. Thanks for all the work you've been doing behind the scenes. And, uh, and I really appreciate having you on. You're, you're welcome back anytime. 